0: Okay, <clears throat> I'm sure we'll have people trickle in late, but we can get started for right now. My name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are not very familiar with us, we are uh, can you hear me? We are a grad school, not a think tank, although we do think here. Uh, we offer five two-year master's degrees and 17 one-year graduate certificates in, in various areas. Um, I should state at the outset that I have a vested interest in this whole immigration debate. My uh, wife is a Venezuelan national. um, She's here legally, I hasten to add, um, and is getting citizenship through her marriage to me. Uh, But immigration, the the immigration debate hits all of us uh, in various ways. My name is more personal than others. It's a hot topic with uh, national security, Aspects, aspects related to crime, uh, normative and moral aspects, economic and political aspects. There's a, a lot of different avenues through which to approach it, and um, and each one is the topic of very hot debate. So it's a timely topic, particularly with the change of administrations and with uh, President Trump's uh, new immigration moves and likely planned moves in the future. So I'd like to welcome two very well-qualified people here. Um, first of all, to my left, we have uh Alex, and I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name. NERASTA. Thank you. Just like it looks. Alex NERASTA is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, his His publications have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the USA Today, the Washington Post, the Houston Chronicle, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Post, and other places. His academic publications have appeared in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, the Fletcher Security Review, and Public Choice. He co-authored with Mark Corian of the Center for Immigration Studies, the booklet, Open Immigration, Yay and Nay, came out three years ago. He is a native of Southern California. Uh, I'm a native of a very different state, Northern California. Uh, With several states in between. Yes. And got his undergrad in economics from George Mason University, not too far down the road, and a master's degree in economic history from the London School of Economics, which also makes me like him. My second master's and PhD from the University in uh, international history. Um, to my right is a former student of mine, so it's, uh, I, I know Matt. He's a good guy. I know he will provide us with good uh, sub-topics for debate today. Uh, Matt joined uh, Fair. Remind me what Fair stands for. Is that Federation for American Immigration Reform. Thank you. That was not spelled out for me here. And as you know, being in Washington, there's so many acronyms. It's hard to keep them all straight. Uh, and is responsible for managing FAIR's research activities. In the past, he's held a wide variety of positions focusing on immigration issues in both the government and the private sector. Immediately f- uh, prior to joining FAIR, Matt served as the chief of the National Security Division within the Fraud, Detection and National Security Directorate of USCIS, the U.S. Citizenship and Integration Services. There, he was responsible for formulating and implementing procedures to protect the legal immigration system from national security threats. He holds a BA in French from Johns Hopkins and a, a law degree from the University of Maine School of Law. So, welcome with me these uh, two speakers, and uh, we will have opening statements from both of them. Alex, why don't we start with you and then we'll move over to Matt, and then we can do some back and forth.
1: Well, thank you very much for the introduction uh, today. I look forward to this debate. I want to begin with, I think, a brief description of what the current immigration system looks like. Oftentimes, there's a lot of mythology around there, uh, out there surrounding what the current legal system is. Uh, basically, if you're kind of trying to come here as a legal permanent resident, trying to get a green card, which if you follow the rules will eventually allow you to become a citizen, um, there's basically four ways to do it. Uh, one way is to be closely related to an American or a lawful permanent, another green card holder who's here. Uh, second way is by being sponsored uh, by a high uh, by an American company if you are highly skilled. It's about 140,000 or so of those a year, including their family members. Uh, the second is basically humanitarian asylum uh, seekers, refugees, things like that. Uh, doesn't account for uh, that many. Uh, in most years, around 100,000, uh, about 70, 80,000 refugees, and some number around uh, depending on the year, 30 to 50,000 asylum seekers. And then you a diversity visa lottery. It's about fifty thousand a year. Now, if you notice, there's not really a category in there for low-skilled workers who aren't related to an American. Uh, the way that a lot of our ancestors uh, used to enter this country. If this system was applied backwards in time, virtually none of us would be here today. I one time I like to debate. I do a lot of debates and presentations in Arizona for an obvious reason. Uh, people there are very, very interested in immigration, and I had. One time, uh, this nice lady came up to me and she said, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying about the benefits of immigration, and economics, and all that, but why don't all the illegal immigrants just go down to the post office and legalize? And I'm like, well, I had to explain to her that that's not the way the law works. There is no way for, the, for almost all of these folks to come here legally in the first place or to legalize once they get here. So I realized that I think most of the misperceptions in this debate have to deal with ignorance about how the system uh, operates. So I had to sadly tell this woman that the American ideal that she had uh, grown up hearing about, where you can make it if you go to Ellis Island and it's a wide open door, if you uh, don't mean to do Americans American harm, uh, had shut down before she was born. So that was a pretty depressing thing for me to have to tell her. So I want to begin just with that brief description of the system. And three points I want to make about how immigration is good for Americans and for the United States. The first point is economics, the second point is it's consistent with our traditions, And the third point is the risk from crime and terrorism is very low, and and the benefits outweigh um, those costs. So first point, economics, Uh, immigration increases both the supply and demand sides of the economy. The obvious bit is that immigrants are workers, so they increase supply, but immigrants are also people, which means they buy things. And by buying things, that boosts the demand side of the economy, which increases the uh, demand for more workers in the US economy. So that's why you can have more people who are here and not that much effect on wages. The second effect is that it increases GDP. You have more people here who are working. GDP is the total measure of all the new goods and services produced in a year inside of the country. You have more goods and services produced by having more people here who are making things. Now what people are most worried about, I think, in the economic sphere, at least, is the wage impact. Uh, They wanna know how does having a large number of new workers in the United States affect the wages of Americans. Uh, what we can see, uh, what we see is uh, the effect on wages by immigration is very small. Basically, the entire academic debate is focused on whether it lowers the wages of Americans with less than a high school degree by about 3%, or whether it lowers or it increases their wages by about one half of 1%. So you have a very narrow band in which the debate in the academic sphere in which people who actually look at this research are uh, studying it, to give you a perspective on that, Americans with less than a high school degree, about 9.5% of the population, age 25 years or older, even the most pessimistic finding in the peer-reviewed literature by George Borhaus at Harvard University, finds that <laughs> the top 90% of American workers either see wage increases or no effect due to immigration on their wages in the United States, uh, with the net effect being that more Americans win by a greater amount than they lose, even in the most pessimistic account of that, even when you exclude all of the benefits of the immigrants themselves and, and assume that all of the benefits of them are not worth zero. I'm just talking about the benefits of native-born Americans right here. Of course, the benefits increase tremendously when you include the immigrants or new Americans as I like to call them, uh, and that, I think, matters. Now, why, uh, what are some of the other reasons why immigrants don't affect wages of native-born Americans? One, they have different skills. Most Americans are either less skilled than most Americans, uh, most immigrants are either less skilled than most Americans or more, more skilled. In order to compete and lower their wages, immigrant workers have to be substitutable. They have to be able to do your job. So if you're a uh, sort of middle income worker who's an accountant uh, in English in the United States, you have uh, some college or a college education, a Mexican illegal immigrant who doesn't speak English and has a 10th grade education is not going to be competing with you for your job. Uh, on the high end, a lot of immigrants are also higher skilled. Uh, And uh, an immigrant who is an engineer or an IT professional is not gonna lower the wages of an American uh, who does not compete with them in the market. So that's just sort of wage wage and labor economics, uh, sort of a simple uh, introduction. Another thing is the scale effect. Uh, This has to go do, when you go back to your sort of foundational Adam Smith, Uh, basically division of labor is what causes productivity and economic growth, and the amount of the division of labor is limited by the scale of the market and the scale and extent of the market is increased by having more immigration. So more immigration, more GDP growth, more specialization, et cetera. And the last way is through innovation and total factor productivity growth. Immigrants have a positive impact on productivity growth. Now that's all well and good. It's Positive on net for the labor market. There might be some losers at the lower end who do compete with some immigrants. I'm totally willing to concede that. Um, But what about other things such as the welfare state? Uh, Poor immigrants are less likely to use means-tested welfare benefits than poor native-born Americans. Uh, so much, and when they do use these benefits, they tend to you have a dollar value of consumption that's lower than that consumed by similar Americans. So much so that if all native-born Americans who use Medicaid signed up for it at the same rate as poor immigrants did and use it at the same dollar value, the program would be 42% smaller and there'd be no difference in health outcomes. That also, uh, another estimate or another thing that's to do with the welfare state is the effect on entitlement programs, uh, such as Medicare and Social Security. Uh, Native born Americans take out $31 billion a year more than they put into Medicaid Part a, Medicare Part A. I'm sure it's no news to you all that Medicare is uh, going bankrupt very rapidly. Uh, I will not be getting it. Uh, some of you in the room might get it for a little bit, uh, but I'm sorry I to, be able to be the bearer of economic bad news, uh, but native-born Americans take out $31 billion a year more than what they put in. Uh, immigrants, on the other hand, put in $14 billion a year more than what they take out. So while immigrants, I don't think, are gonna save uh, Medicare or Social Security, and you have similar numbers uh, for Social Security uh, and a trust fund, uh, et cetera, but although immigrants are not gonna save these programs, they do create a less negative cash flow to maybe allow, you know, if our elected officials ever care about the future beyond the next election, uh, a little bit of wiggle room to put in place uh, some kind of reform to try to save it. The net fiscal impact, the impact of immigrants on the net budget deficit in the United States. Uh, there is a vast empirical literature on this. They take account of numerous different methods using that dynamic uh, general equilibrium models, static models, net transfer models, generational accounting models, et cetera. Uh, The standard finding of all of these across the board is that immigrants about pay for themselves in the long run in terms of the budget deficits with a little bit of wiggle room equal to somewhere around 0.2% of GDP one way or the other. So it's pretty small wiggle room one way or the other. And of course the the biggest market that immigrants impact by far more than any other is real estate. Uh, Basically a 1% increase in the population of a local area due to immigration increases rents and real estate prices by 1%. Americans own almost all real estate in the United States. That's a huge wealth transfer to Americans who own real estate in the United States uh, as a result of immigration. Uh, Rents do get higher, so if you don't own, you will be paying higher rent as a result of that, but the gains do massively outweigh the cost. Now, what about American traditions? Uh, I think y'all know how absurd it is to talk about a blood American, how stupid it is to talk about that. It's one of the few countries in the world where that really doesn't make any kind of sense. Uh, we talking about that, and one of the reasons why that is is due to the huge waves of the immigrants from all over the world that have come here uh, over the centuries. I mean, if you just take a look at our last names up here, I'm sure if you've even dug into our backgrounds and family histories, you'd find lots of different people from lots of different countries that have come over here at one point or another. If we were living in Europe, we'd pat ourselves in the back for being super diverse, uh, but we need to know, notice it in the United States uh, when we talk about these things. Uh, so this is part of our history, going back to the Declaration of Independence, one of the complaints in the, in the Declaration was that King George III was obstructing the movement of migrants to the United States and obstructing their naturalization, which was necessary back then to their own property. Uh, the Constitution, Article I, Section 8, does not spell out a power for the government to restrict immigration, for the federal government to do so. It specifically carves out naturalization, but does not carve out another power at uh, that time to restrict the movement of people to this country for any old reason at that time. And the first law passed in the 1790, uh, Naturalization Act of 1790, did not put any restrictions on the movement of people to this country legally, uh, even though they could have. They had the word migration, they used it in other contexts. They had the concept, they had the understanding uh, of it at that time. Uh, that law had some other bad things in it, that first law, uh, specifically limiting naturalization of free white people. Uh, but in terms of its restrictions on the people who come here, uh, they were non-existent, and this view of the world is consistent with a natural rights tradition and the enlightenment tradition that informed the founding of this country, as well as the legal traditions at that time, which is that nonviolent people should be allowed to move across borders and live where they please, so long as it's voluntary, so long as the people in these areas want to sell them land or rent them or hire them. Now, there are of course some follow on to that, however, these people are assimilated into the U.S. culture. Uh, when we take a look at the assimilation rates, the ch- uh, learning English, uh, the rate of English learning amongst the children of the immigrants today, uh, the rate at which their incomes converge with those of Native Americans, their education, uh, family size, religiosity. The rate today is very similar to what it was over 100 years ago in the early 20th century with Italians, Jews, and Eastern Europeans and other immigrant waves at that time. Jacob Vigdor at the University of Washington has cataloged these numbers in extreme detail that I recommend you all check out on his website. The National Academy of Sciences had a huge report on this with the sort of really bland and boring conclusion that assimilation is going pretty well. Um, when we take a look and drill down into these numbers, uh, Jack Citron at Berkeley has taken a look at how are immigrants and their descendants, especially Hispanics, are they as patriotic as other Americans are? Uh, yes, they are. In fact, correcting for uh, education and income, native-born Hispanics are more likely to say America is the best country in the world than native-born non-Hispanics. Uh, in the United States. Uh, We can drill down into the General Social Survey, which has been asking these questions since 1972. It's the largest biennial survey in the United States, 60,000 people uh, every two years. Uh, They add, you can divide it up by immigrants, and they ask a whole range of questions about patriotism and everything like that. In 1972, There has been basically no change in the way that immigrants and natives view the United States in terms of patriotism, there's no patriotism deficit or anything like that, and the difference between immigrants and Americans is fairly small. We can take a look at that, but when you take a look at the second generation, the generation born in this country, no difference between them and Americans who are fourth generation plus, who have been here for a longer period of time. In terms of the political opinions of immigrants, which affects their assimilation, of course, very important, when you take a look again at the general social survey. They ask so many questions about every political and policy issue you could possibly imagine, from whether you should spend more money on NASA to whether we should have more environmental protections or gun rights and everything like that. And you drill down into all of those. Basically, the biggest difference between immigrants and natives is that immigrants don't like marijuana legalization as much, and they're more likely to be Democrats. The second generation, those differences fade out into that they're within the margin of error, statistical margin of error. The other area, though, where there's a big difference between natives and Americans, native-born Americans, is on the issue of immigration. Uh, Immigrants are much more in favor of liberalized immigration than native-born Americans, and there is some evidence that the reason that that big difference on the issue of immigration is one reason why immigrants are much more democratic in their politics than Republican is because they agree with them on that important issue. Uh, And there's a long, big history about this going back about a century, uh, more than a century now in terms of this. Now, a third issue about why I think immigration is good is uh, the risks are fairly low on the crime and terrorism front. So the chance of a native-born American uh, being incarcerated in a prison, at federal, state level, prison is about 1.53% of us between the ages of 18 and 54 are incarcerated in prison for illegal immigrants, using a residual statistical technique developed by Pew and others, the incarceration rate is 0.85%, so it's about half, a little, a little bit more than half of natives, and for legal immigrants, it's 0.47%, so about one-third that of natives. Now, what's interesting is that incarceration rate for illegal immigrants includes those who are in immigration tension, uh, so they violated uh, some kind of immigration laws, immigration restrictions. When you exclude all those guys, Uh, their incarceration rate dropped down to 0.5%, which is within a hair's breadth, right above that of uh, legal immigrants. Um, What's interesting is, even, and that's not a weird finding, that's perfectly consistent with findings in the academic literature or in government reports going back to about 1907, the Dillingham Commission, a stacked government commission that was uh, intended to find anti-government Uh, anti-immigration results to justify closing the border with Europe at that time. The only reason, the only place where they couldn't lie enough in that report to get the results they wanted uh, was in the area of immigrant criminality, where even then they had to admit that immigrants are less crime-prone than native born Americans. Uh, This continues in numerous different avenues of the academic literature, whether you take a look at incarceration rates or whether you take a look at what's called the area approach, where you take a look at an area, compared to other areas or to that area in the past, that gets a sudden surge of a large number of immigrants in there and you track the crime rate uh, as reported. Now, some people might say immigrants are less likely to report crimes, there have been a lot of experiments, there's been a lot of survey data to try to get at that, and they are just as likely to cooperate with the police, even when there's a lot of immigration enforcement going on, and this is one thing where I, I will give to the other side that, the, the, the exaggeration about immigrants not cooperating with the police when there's more immigration enforcement is totally overblown, so they do cooperate with them. Um, And then there's a lot of other natural experiments. Now in terms of terrorism, uh, there is of course a terrorism risk. Uh, From immigrants, from 1975 to the end of 2015, 3,024 Americans were murdered on U.S. soil by terrorist attacks committed by foreigners. During that time period, it's 3,024. That means that your per year, your annual chance of being killed in a terrorist attack committed by a foreigner is about one in 3.6 million per year during that time period. Drilling down into that because people are really worried. Of, and by the way, 98.6% of those were committed on 9/11, which is the largest terrorist attack in world history. Depending on how you count it, by either it's about either about four, uh, about seven times as great as the next largest terrorist attack, or 10 times as great. So it really is a huge outlier event. But we need to include it because it accounts for so many of the deaths and terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Now, I will say that 88%. Uh, about 3,000, uh, a total of, um, let's see, 3,432 Americans have been killed or people have been killed on US soil by terrorists during that time period. So 88% of those deaths have been caused by foreign born folks, terrorists on US soil. So immigrants are disproportionately involved, or at least in deadly terrorism and the effective kind of terrorism. But that's almost entirely because of 9 11. You exclude 9 11, it goes down to about, immigrants are responsible for about 9%. Which is about the average of their foreign-born population at that time, but we have to include 9/11, of course, because it's such a large focus. When I think of terrorism, I think of 9/11. That's, I mean, that fills my mind. Um, drilling down to that, people are really, really worried about refugees in the United States. During that time period, there were three Americans killed in terrorist attacks on U.S. soil committed by refugees. That means that the annual chance of being murdered in a terrorist attack committed by a refugee on U.S. soil is one in 3.64 billion per year. Now, I think there's a lot of things that um, I'm worried about in my life, but taking a look at these risks, for instance, by the way, your annual chance of being murdered in a homicide during that time here, normal homicide, is one in 14,218 per year. So your chance of being murdered in a normal homicide is about 255,000 times as great as you being murdered in a terrorist attack committed by refugee. So I think there's a lot of things we should be worried about. Um, I do not think that terrorism caused by foreign-born people is one of them, uh, given the very, very low risk of that and given the large economic benefits of terrorism on the other side. I'm sorry, large economic benefits of immigration on the other side. So in very uh, quick conclusion, immigrants make us richer, uh, more, uh, a radically more open immigration system is consistent with U.S. culture and with our history, and immigrants are pretty safe. So, thank you.
2: All right, Matt. Go ahead, you've got about 15 minutes to... Okay, thank you. <coughs> One of the problems with the debate on immigration is that most people in favor of immigration, particularly in large levels, uh, turn the debate into a zero-sum game. So it's always presented as if we have no immigration or wide-open immigration. The problem with immigration today isn't immigration itself. It's the fact that the United States has not exercised adequate controls over its immigration system, its immigration procedures, to secure the safety of the citizens who live in the United States. All of these numbers and statistics are wonderful, but the fact is that the libertarian and the economic arguments about immigration tend to look at immigration in a vacuum. It's a one-note symphony, and it reduces immigration entirely to a labor and economic system. And the fact is that when you do that, you're treating immigrants as a, a monolithic block. And immigrants are people. I believe that the other speaker said that. So you're going to find that when immigrants come to the United States, A lot of these statistics make sense if you are dealing with a particular economic model, but that means that you have to make a choice and make assumptions. And the reality is that most of these assumptions rest on the existence of some primeval free market that's totally bereft of any kind of restrictions. The fact is, that's not how the economy works, and it's not how international relations works. And the fact is, no one ever stops to ask the question, even if we were in some kind of an ideal state in a totally free market, are there reasons that don't have anything to do with economics why immigration may not be good for the United States? And when I say immigration, I mean immigration in the large, uncontrolled numbers in which it's currently happening. I, after many years working in immigration, and the organization I work for, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, don't believe that you need to shut off immigration. I think one of the other assumptions that accompanies the debate about immigration is that the United States somehow recently became global. I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, right next door to Salem, Massachusetts, which you probably all know from the witch Trials. Of course, what most people don't realize is Salem was also an international trading hub in the 1700s and 1800s, and there were ships that left there every day to go all over the world to bring goods back to the United States and to trade goods that were brought from the United States. So if we look at the way the situation exists now, what is the problem? It comes down to an issue of sovereignty, rule of law, and international relations. International relations meets domestic policy <coughs> at immigration. The fact is that we have people coming into the united states from other countries they're newcomers they still have connections to their prior culture their prior country a lot of times they still have political interests that are linked to their prior country it takes time for those people to assimilate some of them have an interest in doing that and some of them don't but the fact is if you wish to maintain your sovereignty then you need to have control of your borders because there's not a nation that has existed in the history of man that lost control of its borders and still continue to exist. So open borders philosophy is fantastic. All you want to look at is the economic consequences of immigration. But there are a number of other reasons why you might want to look at immigration. Now, and these are all potentially disastrous because if you're not going to have a border, you lose control over not just your borders, but the whole way your country is governed. It results in the dilution and destruction of cultures that have a historical track record of economic prosperity and stability. And if you look at it, people never stop to think, why is the United States so economically successful? Now, a lot of people would tell you that's because of immigration. But the fact is, the role that immigration has played in the development of the United States is significant, but it's also largely overblown. The Statue of Liberty doesn't have anything to do with immigration. It was a gift from France to celebrate liberty. And in the early part of the Republic, we had relatively low levels of immigration. That's why immigration was so manageable. There was a significant amount of territory, a significant opportunity for economic development, and a relatively sizable number of people that wanted to come here, but not a number too big for the United States to assimilate. There's also an assumption that this is a relatively new debate, except with the you know, other than the mention of, of restrictionist laws, which most of them, if you investigate history behind them, were not racially motivated, were not motivated by animus, they were motivated by concerns about national security. The very first case that took place in the Supreme Court dealing with immigration was a case called the Freeze case. It was decided in 1799, and it was one of the first cases decided by the Supreme Court after the Constitution was signed and the court was formed. And it basically said, the United States as a sovereign nation, has an unfettered, ability to kick out whoever it feels like if they don't comply with the laws of the united states and it involved a case where an individual was suspected of spying so this is not something that has just happened recently and the the notion of the national security risks have just happened recently this is something that goes back to the earliest days of the republic Um, there's also an interface between culture and economics and so the economic debates are always presented in terms of numbers but it was Friedrich Hayek that said that culture is important because it provides a specialized local knowledge that is essential to making a marketplace work. You also need to have property rights and forms to enforce them if you want democracy to work. And the Anglo-American legal model and Christianity are the basis for our legal system and for the forum where we can go to vindicate our rights. Open borders aren't compatible with representative democracy and and limited government. Uh, There's a constitutional law scholar who deals with sovereignty issues uh, who was at the American Enterprise Institute. His name is Jeremy Repton, and he said, National sovereignty is the presupposition for all the other lines of principle established by the Constitution. Constitutionalism is about legal boundaries, and the Constitution necessarily requires that sovereignty be safeguarded so that the Constitution itself can be secure. So, I think the economic argument also fails to take into account the fact that if you have open borders, what very rapidly happens is whatever majority happens to be in your country, if they are given the right to vote, which if you had open borders, why would you delay citizenship for any significant amount of time? It sort of undermines the open borders argument. You lose the ability to govern yourself and you lose your sovereignty as a nation. And I don't think anyone wants that. Now, the other issue is this sort of diversity of strength argument. And it's true, a large number of studies have shown that diversity breeds innovation. But none of those studies were looking at immigration or even looking at people from different ethnic backgrounds working together. They were looking at people with a diversity of thought. And the fact is, if you want to be successful in a project, you need to have people who have enough in common to communicate with each other but have enough ability to think independently so that their efforts undergird each other. So there are a couple of ways you can accomplish that. You can accomplish that with slow controlled immigration. You can accomplish that with a federalist system where different states are allowed to have a different tenure of government in each of the states but are guided by a a federal government under a federalist system. Or you can attempt to open your borders to immigration. But the fact is that uh, political scientists by the name of Robert Putnam has been involved in a large number of studies that show that, that places with low levels of social capital tend to experience lower levels of interpersonal trust, lower levels of civic, social, and charitable engagement, inefficient provision of public goods, and sluggish economic growth. Now, if you look at some of the former Soviet republics or some of the former colonies in Africa, you can see that happening. Uh, We're all familiar with the Hutu and the Tutsi divide. One of the things in the United States that prohibits us from having those kind of ongoing ethnic struggles is there is a presumption that America has a unique culture and that immigrants are obligated as part of their reception into American society to assimilate to that culture and to adopt our way of doing things. Now, people get all upset about that, but if you think about it, you go to France, people speak French, they have a French legal system, they do things the French way. Nobody thinks that's terrible when they're traveling. Somehow, when that's applied to immigration, people get very upset about it. You want immigration to be something that benefits the American people. It's like any other policy decision, whether it's international relations or domestic spending. It should be a policy call that is made with the idea of benefiting the American public and doing something that is positive for the American people. And we're rapidly reaching a point where immigration is not doing that anymore. As far as the terrorism goes, I think it's all well and good to say that you have a, a low statistical probability of being killed, but if you're the person that gets killed, you're just as dead. The other issue with that is that one of the fundamental functions of a sovereign government is to protect its citizens, and it should protect them both at the the state and local level in terms of regular public safety, but even more importantly, it, it should protect them from terrorism and from international incursion into the United States. And the fact is that we have recently entered an era where we have things like the September 11th attacks happening. Those were all perpetrated by people who were here as legal aliens. So there's a question as to whether we're managing our legal immigration system effectively. And there's also a question as to what kinds of things, when you have an established network of people who are residing unlawfully in a country can develop within that community and can be cloaked. Because the bigger that community you have is, the more potential you have for criminal networks and for terrorist networks and other networks to develop. And if you, by definition, have a group of people that is evading the authorities and living in the shadows, they're not going to cooperate with law enforcement. Very frequently, the things that they are doing are going to be nearly invisible or at the very least inaccessible to law enforcement. And that is exactly what has happened with the terrorist groups that have been so freely operating in the United States and were apparently doing it before the September 11th attacks but have become more of a concern post-September 11th. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is to enforce the laws that we have on the books. The Immigration Nationality Act of the United States has been on the books for a good 25, 30 plus years in its current format. It's had a number of changes. Most of the changes took place within a specific framework and haven't made a huge amount of difference. The problem is that we are not enforcing the legal authority that we have, and it's not coming back to haunt us because we don't have control of our borders. All of these numbers, a lot of these estimates, are things that you have to know who is in your country to effectively estimate them. And if you can't establish who's actually in your country, then you can't really make these estimates and make them legitimately. And it becomes a particular problem with regard to illegal aliens, because it's very difficult. And When I was taking evidence in law school, this was the thing that they hammered home all the time. It's very difficult to prove a negative fact. Now, one of the problems we had with the 1986 amnesty, and I worked on a number of the later cases when I first started working for the government that came in through that, is you had people trying to prove they entered the country illegally. Stop and think about that for a minute. How exactly do you do that? Because if you're entering the country illegally, by definition, you're not being given any kind of documentation when the federal government looks at your passport and says, oh, yep, you're gonna enter as an illegal alien. Have fun living in the shadows. You don't have any legal rights here. So overall, in terms of border control, in terms of national security, it's a big problem to have a porous border and to have an inability to tell who is in your country. One of the other problems with the amnesty programs is, and we continue to do this in the United States and continue to attempt to do it, in what other area of law do people think that it's a good idea to reward bad behavior and then somehow expect that that's going to cure the problem? You'll never hear somebody saying, we have a terrible identity theft problem. We need to hit the reset button we need to amnesty everyone who is engaged in identity theft and start over again with really tough really important laws and the arguments that get made in terms of immigration reform are thoroughly misguided because they have a tendency to focus on well we need to secure the border first then what happens you have surges of people at the border hoping that they're going to get in before they get locked out and then you've added to the problem of what do you do with the people that are inside the United States. And the simplest problem in terms of that, and I'm sure some people in the audience will find this shocking, but those of the law and order bent won't. There's a constant assumption in the debates on immigration in the media where people say, it's impossible, it's not technically feasible, there's no way we can deport 11.5 million people. And I say to that, how do we know? We've never tried. Now, this is a group of people that are entitled to constitutional due process, but other than that, they're trespassers in the United States. And I don't think you have to expend the type of effort that people envision, and it's always portrayed as, and, you know, do I look like a jackbooted thug? Because I worked for ICE for quite a long time. All of the immigration arrest procedures and the procedures necessary to deport somebody are conducted under the same law enforcement standards as any other. People are entitled to constitutional due process. So I fail to understand why the argument is always portrayed as we're going to raise up this posse of jackbooted thugs and we're going to drag people from their home. No one has an issue with the government serving warrant and arresting somebody for any other violation of law. In immigration, people get all upset about it. And it makes no sense whatsoever, because these are people who have begun their relationship with their supposed new country by violating the law. And they continue to violate the law by being unlawfully present. Typically, they continue to commit other violations, such as identity fraud and things that they claim are necessary uh, in order to get a job. The other thing to take into account is the reason that people come here is not just economic. The fact is that many, many people come to the United States seeking safety and security. And with the recent uh, mass exodus of people from the Middle East into Europe, there's been a lot of discussion about whether people are economic migrants or refugees, with very little consideration of the fact that they can be both, or they can be one more than the other. So American law says that we have an obligation to provide refuge to certain people who meet certain standards. When we have vetted them, we have decided it's safe to let them in the United States. We don't give asylum or refugee status to people fleeing general conditions of civil strife. I think the other thing we have to take into account, uh, we had a comment here that if immigration didn't occur, none of us would be here. Well, there's another none of us would be here. It's one thing when people want to seek refuge. We all understand that, that basic precept, but we are all sitting in a country where a group of individuals said, we are Englishmen, we are not being treated according to English law. Therefore, we are going to put the crown on notice, and if they don't begin to treat us appropriately, we will form our own country, and they did. We wouldn't be sitting here if they had all said, wow, things are about to get rough, I don't want to hang, let's go to Germany or France, we can probably get refuge there. That leads into another issue that there's significant human capital drain when Western First World countries fling open their doors and allow pretty much anybody who wants to get out of another place, particularly if it's less developed, to come into the United States. What is that doing to the countries that these people leave? It's all well and good if you are a profession, lawyer, doctor, engineer, dentist, who wants to immigrate and come to the United States and drive a taxi but the fact is that in terms of the public good that's accomplished, might we not be doing more to stabilize your own country by staying in your country where you're familiar with the culture and where you have a legal right to be and authorization to work and continue to try and exert whatever talents you have in order to make the situation better. And yet that's an aspect of the argument that's very rarely raised. So I think all in all, if I had to make any particular points to summarize what the immigration policy of the United States should be, Very simply, it should be the immigration policy that we want to have. It should be the immigration policy that the the majority of the American people have voted for and has been enacted through their legal representatives. It should be a policy that works for the American public and it should be a policy that sticks to the rule of law. When you don't stick to the rule of law, what you do is you create underclasses. We had an argument about that. It went on from 1861 to 1865. It didn't work so well for the country. It was the same argument that's going on now. You had a group of people in the South that said, hey, we're going to bring these people here against their will to engage in employment doing jobs that Americans don't want to do. Wasn't true then. It's not true now. We don't have slavery anymore, but frequently we are dooming people to a type of economic slavery when we bring low skilled people here. We allow them to remain here unlawfully to be exploited by employers. And I find that argument about jobs that Americans are very unwilling to do to be a wholly racist argument because it's essentially saying, I'm very happy for somebody to come here and clean my toilet, but I don't want them competing with my kid for a spot at Harvard Medical School. So ultimately, and most significantly, it is a rule of law issue. It starts with immigration, it can finish much farther down the line because when you fail to respect the rule of law in one area and you cannot articulate a philosophically and intellectually coherent reason for why you are doing that, the whole system falls apart behind it. All right, (coughs) suffice it to say
0: that I think we have a significant difference in opinion and plenty room for debate. Alex, do you want a few minutes to
1: respond? Sure, I guess I'll begin at the end. Um, One of the subjects I studied in economic history was the economics of slavery. Uh, just to give you a little taste about why the comparison of immigrants and slavery is wholly absurd and economically and historically ignorant, uh, about half of the uh, slaves who were captured in Africa and driven to the coast died along the way. Half of them more who were shipped on ships to the United States died on the way. Super so a 75% death rate, and when they got to the United States, they had a lower standard of living measured by their height, weight, etc. when they got to the United States. The median wage gain by comparison of immigrants to the United States is a fourfold increase in income, better health, better height, and everything else. So the comparison to slavery, I think, is just a very cheap point, very silly point to compare immigration to slavery. I think uh, you all know that and recognize that, but I don't want to hammer that home. He basically conceded the entire economic argument. Uh, he uh, talked about how uh, immediately A lot of these economic models I'm talking about uh, depend on the assumptions. Those are not the models that I was talking about. I was not talking about general equilibrium models. I was talking about measurements, models that tend to measure the effect of immigrants on American wages, specifically quoting the work of George Borjas from Harvard University, who is the most prominent skeptic of immigrants' benefit to the United States. And I started and used those numbers because I am interested at that point. So even when you take a look at the most prominent skeptic, real economist who writes on this issue, the net benefits for Americans are positive when you take a look at the economic impact. Now, we've heard a lot of talk about sovereignty and the rule of law. The United States had open borders from 1790 to 1875, and as far as I know, we were a sovereign country then. Having uh, free immigration does not mean that borders are gone. I can move from this state to any other state in the Union, and the state borders still matter and are still important. We had free immigration across borders, the notion that somehow destroys national sovereignty simply not true. And I would wager you should go back in time and tell Abraham Lincoln he was not president of a sovereign country at the time that he fought the Civil War, because that is essentially the argument that my opponent is making. Rule of law? very interesting argument we did not hear a definition however from this gentleman about what the rule of law is I'll provide a definition from uh, Friedrich Hayek and Richard Posner three portions one predictable outcomes two equal application three consistent with our traditions of liberty the immigration laws right now are inconsistent with every single one of those one there are no predictable outcomes in the immigration system you try going through it yourself you will have two people, exact same characteristics, because of bureaucratic incompetence, because of the opinion of some bureaucrat in an agency, because of different circumstances, you will have very different outcomes. Two, equal application. It arbitrarily discriminates on people based on the country where they're from. If you were to have a law in the state of Texas that arbitrarily discriminates about which state you are from in terms of a criminal law or application like that, There are differences in terms of like in-state tuition, but in terms of that, that would not be consistent with the rule of law. And consistent with our traditions of liberty, there's an entire legal tradition in the United States and the United Kingdom going back to the 1600s informed by our Anglo-Saxon roots uh, based on the idea of a difference between a uh, pecuniary and competitive externality. If you compete with somebody in the labor market and you lose, too bad. Too bad, you can't sue somebody over that. Oh, you make a business and you lose because your business product isn't any good? Too bad, you lose. That's a big difference between me, even though materially, if you burn down my business, that might be the same effect on me as if you outcompeted me. We make a very important distinction in the Anglo-Saxon, peculiar Anglo-Saxon system of jurisprudence about this. The name of this idea is "damnum absque injuria, harm without legal injury. Uh, and I would argue that if we are actually want to consistently apply our legal traditions to the area of competition in the labor market with immigrants, then even if all the economic stuff that I said is wrong, even if it's all nonsense, and immigrants do compete with Americans and lower all of our wages, too bad because our legal traditions and our legal system which are responsible for the wealth and prosperity and success of this country say otherwise. And those are what we inherited and those I think are important and worth defending. The immigration rate in the early 20th century was four times as high as it is today as a percentage of the population. Four times as high. In the 1850s it was three to four times as high each year. The notion that what we're seeing today as a percentage of our population is extraordinary is simply not true in terms of the annual flows. It is true in terms of the stock but not in terms of the annual flow. In terms of the political and economic institutions that make us wealthy. I've done a lot of the frontier research on this myself, published in a peer-reviewed journal. I have a paper I uh, co-authored in Journal of Public Choice about this where we took a look at every country around the world, the stocks of immigrants in the past, and then took a look at their economic freedom scores at points in the future. Because economic freedom is very closely correlated with wealth and prosperity and peace in a country. And what we found is that countries that had large groups Of immigrants as a percentage of the population in the past had greater increases in economic freedom going forward. Greater increases going forward than uh, in the past. When we take a look at US history from 1900 to 1930, we saw a doubling in the size of the federal government in terms of uh, uh, the, the amount of federal spending per capita. In real terms, a doubling too much. I'm a small government guy. Doubling is way too much from about 1930 to 1970 where we followed the immigration policy that this gentleman's organization wants to follow we saw a 17-fold increase in federal spending per capita in real terms what have we seen in federal spending in real terms from 17, 1970 about to today when the immigration system has been more liberalized a doubling a return to the historical norm so if anything if anything the correlations all run in my direction which is more immigration less growth of government more economic freedom. The most statist period in American history, when we got the New Deal, when we got the Great Society programs, with the un, uh, unsustainable entitlement programs that we currently have and we're going to pay for uh, going forward, were created uh, because immigration, as a result of, not because immigration, but as a result of immigration being closed off. Uh, Vernon M. Briggs, Jr., who is a late, uh, sort of a labor economist he's with the, comparative inter- uh, the Center for Immigration Studies, wrote that without the best argument against those programs was immigration, was an open border. Because the argument was that these people will be able to use it, when that goes away, it's wrong. Now in terms of this very, how much more time do I have, a minute or two? We should end
0: up pretty soon. Just so, uh, we gotta get five minutes then we gotta go. Before.
1: Okay, uh, we can go on this. Uh, uh, if you think America, now, most of the opponents of immigration today, I don't think are interested in race or obsessed with that at all, but it's simply inaccurate to say that people in the past were not. Just take a look at the Chinese Exclusion Act. It does exactly what it says. Uh, The justifications for the eugenics-based 1920s act, which were the ones that closed open immigration with Europe in the 1920s and locked out hundreds of thousands of people who would have come here and fled the wars in Europe at that time were all based on eugenics and silly racial theories at that time. Uh, Nobody argues in favor of citizenship immediately across borders. Even when the United States had open borders, you had to wait a long period of time to get that, and I totally support that. Uh, The Putnam research has been debunked numerous times in numerous journals. Uh, there's not a link inside of the United States between areas that don't get immigration or the diversity and then uh, have economic growth. The areas that have the most diversity and growth are the ones that grow the fastest, a.k.a. the cities. If you think that immigration lowers growth, then explain to me West Virginia, which has the lowest percentage of this population that's foreign-born and also some of the worst economic outcomes in the country. When can talk about terrorism, I will suffice it to say that when my opponent talks entirely about the costs and not about the benefits side, you're leaving out a lot. Every dollar spent on an immigration restriction due to lost economic growth is a the dollar that could have spent on increasing American safety elsewhere. So when you are obsessed with something, with lowering the risk of terrorism in one area where it's very small and want to spend a lot of resources on it and decrease economic growth as a result of that, that leaves fewer resources to use in areas where you can actually make a difference and save people's lives. This is one of the benefits of having an economic training, is the understanding of the concept of opportunity cost. Uh, This is a concept that is woefully lacking. It's probably the biggest lacking thing in American public policy right now. We want to talk about ethnic and racial strife in the United States. The 1960s and 70s was the worst, which was the time period when America had the lowest percentage of its population that was foreign-born in US history. And we actually most during that most of that time, uh, with inner city riots, with Black Panthers, with the Weather Underground blowing up uh, hundreds and hundreds of bombs across this country, with inner city riots destroying cities like Detroit uh, or in this city DC, was when we followed the immigration policy uh, recommended by these other groups for a very long period of time. So the correlations run entirely in the opposite direction. Um, and I think I've run out of time. I don't want to. Yeah, otherwise much. we'll get going.
0: If okay. For. Matt, anybody?
2: I think the problem, as I stated before, is that the economic arguments always take place in a vacuum and they take place in a fantasy world, whether you want to call it libertarian or narco capitalist or anything similar. The fact is that people have government all over the world for a reason. It seems to be a natural human condition. And while I am, as a very conservative individual, not very fond of big government. The fact is that we're not talking about the Department of Education or the Department of Energy or some other questionable agency. We're talking about sovereignty. We're talking about one of the basic responsibilities that a government undertakes. And to think that you could have open borders and not have terrorism or crime is just absolutely foolhardy. I mean, if you look at the surges that have occurred along the border because of things going bad in other countries, you have large numbers of people who are bumping up against the border and saying, I want in. We don't know who those people are, we don't know what they were engaged in at home, and we don't know what they're capable of. And so the problem with looking at this is as an economic issue, and the problem with expanding economic models to to larger issues is not everything is a market and not everything is a cost-benefit analysis. But I would say that the responsibility of the United States government, even if millions of dollars accrue every year through immigration, which I'm not ready to concede by any stretch of the imagination, there are valid reasons why you would want to say that is not enough. And so it's wonderful to say, oh, this is an over-obsession with terrorism. However, if you are one of the people who dies in the terrorist act, or if you're one of the people who is related to the individual who dies in the terrorist act, or an innocent bystander who is wounded at something like the Boston Marathon attack, you have to stop and wonder, would this have happened if these people were not able to get into the United States? It's also ridiculous to compare the the current situation with the historical situation in terms of open borders versus not open borders. The fact is that while the borders were much more porous back in that time, you're talking about a time period when most people didn't travel more than 30 miles from their home. People knew who people were and the fact is that the Supreme Court case is 1799. They were having an argument about deporting someone. So clearly the border wasn't that open because this is a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court and established the right of the United States government to deport people who are violating what were considered to be the immigration laws at the time. I also think that there is a tendency to ascribe racist motives or discriminatory motives to the immigration system but if you think about that it's absurd saying that you're discriminating against someone based on their country of origin is inaccurate you're discriminating against who you let into the country or not on the basis of their not being American not on the basis of their being a Frenchman or someone from China in particular now there are extenuating circumstances where the government has the authority and would have an interest in uh, stopping immigration from certain countries for short periods of time or for longer periods of time i mean in world war ii we didn't have a huge amount of immigration from japan or germany so I, I think it's very easy to to juggle numbers and diminish the national security issue but this is also clearly something that the large majority of americans are concerned about and it's one of the things they bring to their legislators and to their president all the time as, as a major issue of concern
3: sir sure.
0: All right, we could go back and forth forever. So I think what we should do is go to questions, and you guys can both work in whatever points that you have written down in the
4: meantime as part of that. Is that right? Sure. All right. Go ahead. I've had the pleasure of hearing Alex a couple of times. And I'm going to say the the economist in me was the very first time you presented was persuaded. But the engineer in me was thinking that there's a lot that I'm not understanding, which is exactly what you talked about. I've had this discussion with other people trying to understand how to clarify. I'd like to present to you a thought problem that, to me, clarifies the issue, which is imagine that we had a border with China. And I'm not choosing China because of the government. I'm choosing China because we know that it has roughly 100 plus million Person internal migration flows in like a year kind of scale. I mean, they're just huge numbers. It seems to me that if we accept your argument, which I think this is probably true numerically, that we could increase the population of the U.S. to look like Singapore, be incredibly wealthy. But it seems to me America would be a little different. A little different that
1: circumstance. I think it'd be a little better too. I think it'd be a little better, Uh, for instance, prior to the German immigration that really kicked off in the 1850s, America didn't really, I mean there were some in the earlier on but not that many, uh, added tremendously to this country and was very different. I mean if you recall, Ben Franklin was very worried about the Germans Germanifying Pennsylvania and was saying this is going to change it from our Anglo-Saxon traditions and it's not going to be English anymore. But now 17 percent of the US population is German or German ancestry, including myself. I have a lot of German ancestors. I'm, I don't know if you do, but there's a good chance uh, that you do and a lot of people in this room. So while, yes, it would change at least the makeup and the ancestry of a lot of Americans and who they come here, in terms of it changing our fundamental institutions, in terms of it changing the things that make us rich and wealthy and successful in who we are, we don't really see that when we take a look at mass immigration in other places or in American history so i really much doubt that because it's not a random scattershot of people who come here it's not it's people who select to come here with some small exceptions the people who want to leave their country behind and work in another place and be away from their culture and family and all that stuff are generally the people who are a little bit more interested a little bit more cosmopolitan a little bit more tolerant a little bit more interested in these types of things so if China was on our southern border and they wanted to. A lot of these people wanted to come here. In a lot of ways, it would be even better because they are more highly skilled than a lot of the people on our southern border. Uh, and then one other point that I want to make: the law that I believe that this gentleman is defending for deportations is the Alien and Sedition Act. Uh, if you remember your history, that was a law that gave the president the first power to deport people. It also put in uh, restrictions on speech, uh, restrictions on political activity against the federalist government at that time. I think it's no coincidence that that law that restricted our other rights also included a deportation clause. Go ahead.
5: Uh,
1: yeah. And if you uh, could uh,
0: identify yourself uh, and say what. The uh, situation my you name would, what?
5: is I, uh, I'm a Japan native U.S. citizen since 1986. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. So, uh, but I wanna share my personal <coughs> Uh, the, the thing that really bothered me, well, originally from Japan, but I spent a lot of time in Southern California, and... Uh,
0: We've already established that's another country, so... It's,
5: uh,
3: <laughs>
5: and, and <it's>, uh, <laughs> that, the things that takes me off, because I stood in line, I tried to do everything to be assimilated, i uh, But the things that really bothers me is, is that people that are coming in illegally. I have nothing against people who come in here like I did, legally. And I won't give it back. But if it's illegal, once you're illegal, you're always illegal. It's, and then, they take advantage of our lars. Uh, I have some of my friends' uh, nurses. They tell me, you know what, they go to hospital. They never have to pay. See, they're taking advantage of all these lars that, that can be taken advantage of. Uh,
0: yeah, those are part of regularly-voiced people. It, uh, yeah, true. Well,
5: I, I, know, okay. I know this is two-way street, okay? Cause, uh, I blame uh, uh, El Salvador government or, or uh, Latin American government for not taking care of their their uh, citizens. But on the other hand, the U.S. government too, because so lenient, and they're not in- enforced, uh, so that's also the mm-hmm. fault. Uh,
0: do you have a question, or did you want to relay your?
5: Look at. Uh, I, I agree with you, but but then on the other hand, they have to tighten up H uh, one visa thing because they overstays. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and so it's pretty complicated here. But that uh,
0: that. Okay. Thank you for that. Um. I, uh, yeah. Let's go back there.
6: Hi, yes. Um, My name is Maria. I would prefer to leave out my last name and the organization that I work with. But um, about 26 years ago, my sister was hit by a drunk driver in Peru, causing her to uh, lose her right leg. And my mother made the tough decision to come to the United States to immigrate here due to the medical uh, treatment that my sister could receive here. And now my sister's 28. We go to boxing together sometimes, and she has an above-the-knee amputation because she has such a high-tech... Leg, but she is allowed to do that, something that might not be possible. And now, I am one of the 11 million undocumented individuals that you were talking about potentially being able to be deported because you never tried to do that, regardless of the economical uh, facts that have been laid out post the administration saying exactly how much that would cost. Now, I graduated, I came when I was five, I graduated top of my class, four different honors, uh, and I contribute over $9,000 to taxes. That I, into programs that I am not reciprocal of uh, due to my status. So I just wanted to start with that and also move on to asking, when you were talking about deporting people, when we were talking about the ability to exploit these people and the dangers of not knowing who was in our country, wouldn't an immigration reform bill essentially change that so that we first of all knew who was in the country because people had to apply to it, and then after that, be able to screen these people so they are bad they'll be them out of the country, and they are good and they have been here for, let's say, I think the 2013 immigration reform bill requires someone to be here for like 10 or something years, let's say. You know? So they've been here for a long time, they have roots here. People like myself who can speak English better than Spanish who have gone kindergarten through senior year of college, now working, you know, wouldn't it be more economically beneficial? And also just humanitarian, in the humanitarian sense, you know, how can you look at individuals like myself and say you don't belong here because you lack a nine-digit social security number, and your contributions don't matter. So therefore, you we should. Say-
2: well, my response to that wouldn't be that you don't belong here because you don't have a social security number. You don't belong here because your relationship with this country was begun by violating the law. And the fact is, we all have a house. We all lock our doors. We lock our doors because we love the people who live inside the house, not because we hate the people who are outside the house. So I would say to you, how would you feel if someone showed up at your house uh, while you weren't there? You walked in and saw them. What would you do? Call the police?
6: But then you think it's, it's also.
2: She was brought you Well, you was well, interested? hold, hold on. Answer the question. Would you call the police? <clears throat> but
1: I don't, uh, I don't like the. See, you don't want to well, answer the, the analogy, question. The analogy is terrible. That's why.
2: Well, no, it's you know, not... the analogy a, is
1: terrible because immigration is when I invite people like her mother, who came here illegally, into my house. And what you want is the government to tell me that I can't invite who I want onto my property. Um, actually, That's the, what the government already
2: has that authority as a sovereign nation, and it's memorialized in law called the Immigration and Nationality Act, which was created. So the which, fact that which you is have
1: not an open allowed borders- in the U.S. Constitution under Article One, Section Eight, there is no specific grant for immigration powers created by expansionist judges. And there's twenty five years it. of
2: precedent starting in 1799 that says, as an inherent function of a sovereign nation, nope. the United states can exercise no. control over its borders. You may disagree in the 1880s, with that, but I've been working a- for th- with those cases in courts for yeah. 20 plus years. The case that you're citing
1: so- that was more important about the sovereign right of the country, of the government to do that was in the 1880s in the Milne decisions, in the 1880s there were other decisions saying it was part of the Commerce Clause. Judges spent a lot of time futzing around to try to find a justification to expand the government to punish people who wanted to come here or did come here. Uh, unlawfully, for whatever reason, and they did it, and they finally did that. But I mean, she came here as a child. She was brought here by her parents. She grew up here. You want to ruin her life or send her back to a place she doesn't know merely because, even no, though I don't want to ruin, ruin, ruin anyone's
2: her. life, well, I would the like effect. the lives of all that's Americans to be enhanced by living in a country where the rule of law is enforced, where people expect that the law will be obeyed, and that leads to better outcomes because we're all obeying the law and we all have a forum in which we can litigate our disputes rather than clubbing each other over the head. Explain, so, how,
1: explain how deporting her makes our lives better. How does that make my life better? How does spending 10000 to twenty-three thousand dollars of government money to move her out of the country... Since did the
2: calculus for enforcing the laws in the United States become making your or anyone else's life uh, better?
1: Always. Always. If the law made our lives worse, wouldn't we want to change it? If the law made us poorer and stupider and more ignorant, we want to change that law? Law doesn't come down manna from heaven, from God.
2: You, you don't want to change the law. <laughs> you want to get rid of it, and you want to kill ch- any aspect of I the system that establishes any control over you are borders. You
1: are you are mischaracterizing my is, position. You have mischaracterized my position. Okay, I, I put that I out there numerous I times. I have,
0: I, have a, I have a brief pause here for a second, I'll have to say... Attempt to bring some humor to the situation <laughs> that uh, we are going to have a major fundraiser here at IWP. I think we'll fill up hours for the next year. We'll be selling tickets to a closed cage match between not just these two but everyone on both sides of this issue because you can see the, uh, the hot bloodedness it brings out. This is a very, very uh, uh, divisive issue, uh, to say the least. Um, yeah, this gentleman raised his hand first and then we'll go over to you, Matt. Go ahead. About them currently uh, student here, at so
7: I feel like as far as the amnesty, we've been through that before, right? 1980s, Reagan granted amnesty, and it was supposed to solve the problem.
2: Oh my God, this was more illegal immigration. immigration.
7: Fast forward yeah. to 20, 2017 now. You know, it's 11.5 million illegal immigrants in the country, and even best estimates are, I think the latest one was 985,000 here who committed serious crimes. You know, so right now the policy is okay, we're gonna remove anyone who's committed a serious crime, but that's been the government's policy. I'll just so not enforce the law in some books, but let's just go for this area. And that's still not happening. So I guess how can you how can you advocate for totally open borders? I mean, without throwing out laws, you know, 130 years of law in any immigration law the US has, it seems like on one side of the argument it's totally totally have open borders. And ignore the law that we have on the book. Or the other side, I feel like you can consistently be against illegal immigration, but or legal immigration. I mean, fully support legal immigration. Let's say we should have a secure border, know who's coming in, and then that would give us the ability to expand. Really, you know, know who's coming in, have guest worker programs, we you can bring in that low-skilled labor. So I mean, but I think you have
1: to, I mean, how do you get there without having enough, not allowing those masses?
2: No, the answer is you can't.
1: The the answer is, yeah, the answer is, uh, for one thing, my position is not totally open borders. My position is that if you are not a violent or property criminal, If you are not a national security risk in the United States and you have deadly serious contagious disease, then you should be able to come here. So I exclude those categories of people. There should be checks when you enter the United States and all that. So the notion that I want to, you know, no checks when you walk across the border is not an accurate representation of my position. Furthermore, the only way you're going to get control of the border is by having liberalized legal immigration to channel it into the legal market. It's the same thing with prohibition. How did we get a lot of illegal booze off the streets? Was it by hiring 10,000 Elliot Nessesses and putting them all over the streets in every community and having more and more enforcement for alcohol prohibition? No. We realized the mistake and we liberalized it. In the 1950s, there was a large number of illegal immigrants in the early 1950s. The government did a combination of more enforcement, but they also massively expanded the guest worker visa program at the same time. And General Swing, who was head of the INS at the time, he was grilled about this in Congress, and they asked him if he could have done it without the Bracero program, if he could have done it without a massive increase in legal migration from across the border with Mexico, and he said no, you can't do the impossible. It's not that we need to secure the border first to liberalize immigration. It's that liberalizing immigration will actually allow us to secure the border by channeling those folks who are not security threats, who are not criminals, into the legal market because you can't regulate a black market. You can't regulate a black market.
2: How are you going to regulate the people that are criminals? You haven't provided any answer for that. See, this is the problem with the economic argument. The U.S. has been argument. doing it for a
1: long time, and I support it's, all those evidence. They, the, the way that they do it. Do you want me to run down like, the boring legal procedures step by step? People don't want to hear that, but I support those procedures because they keep violent and property criminals out of the United States.
2: Actually, they don't keep violent and property criminals then, out of the United States, which is why we have to deport about 430,000 criminals every year. Well, if you include people who
1: uh, violate our immigration crimes, which is what nobody thinks of when they hear a criminal immigrant, what they think of as a violent and property offender or a drug offender, they don't think somebody who broke some labor market regulation is a criminal. What they think is that these other people are criminals. And we should focus a hundred percent, a hundred percent of our enforcement resources are identifying violent and property criminals, excluding them and terrorists and, and other threats. We sure to not waste our time on people who want to pick tomatoes or work in construction. That's what we're doing right
2: now. I spent years actively engaged in, the in representing the government in immigration proceedings. And I can tell you, the number of people who were deported for immigration violations was absolutely minimal. And when we did deport someone on an immigration violation, it was usually because they were a violent criminal and they had an appeal pending which meant that we couldn't use the criminal charge but in the interest of public safety we wanted to get them out of the United States. So this notion that somehow more immigration is gonna solve the problem or that taking an economic approach where the only thing that is involved is money is going to solve the problem is absurd. It doesn't make any sense from a philosophical or intellectual standpoint. No country in the world has ever worked that way. And the fact is that there are examples of countries that were overrun once they lost the ability to control their borders. The Roman Empire comes to mind, which fell within about ten years after it declared its borders open. And it had no choice in the matter, but nonetheless, it still had the same effect. still had the same effect.
0: Okay, again, we're at the point where we're going to go back and forth forever unless we get another question at a different time. Go ahead.
3: Hi, thank you. Um, first, I wanted to say thank you very much. Um, I came here for a, to listen to the debate and to hear arguments on both sides of the story. My name is Anna Avandano. I work for major non nonprofit in town. I have a long history working on this issue from the standpoint of organized labor and workers and I found myself in a very funny position today of agreeing with the Cato Institute a thousand percent more than I did with your other panelists. Um, I think that it's very apropos to have had this debate here in an institute of critical thinking and I would encourage students to get a transcript of the remarks here and really put them to the test of critical thinking, reasoning, uh, evidence, um, and you're going to find yourself like asking questions like statements like low statistical possibility, of getting killed, sure. But if you're the person who got killed, you're still dead. That is not reasoning. And unfortunately, (laughs) that is exactly what we suffer from this in the issue of immigration so much, these appeals to emotional arguments, hyperbole. um, Put the, and all I'm telling you and asking you, put the statements that, I forget your name, sir, I'm sorry. Through the test and through the rigor of critical thinking and see where we end up. Well, I'm not sure and I understand I have... how it's
2: hyperbole to claim that a country that is based mm-hmm. on the rule of law should enforce its laws. That's really not a radical so, claim. So I have
3: three questions for you. That's one of them is this, this notion of the rule of law to which you're so wedded today. Um, and I don't understand if that's changed over time or you equally wedded to the rule of law when Jim Crow was the law. Or I can give you instances of five other types of laws that Required a dance to the rule of law. Well, I think um, we all agree that Jim yeah, Crow was a, a mistake.
2: So I'm, I'm not sure I understand the. Would you have paper. enforced it if it was on the books still? Would you support enforcing it?
3: It was not a mistake at the
2: time. I, I didn't live there at the time. Would you enforce so, it if uh, it was on the books now? Well, let's well, don't we get through the three questions. Okay.
1: So- yeah, you can't answer the question. Again,
2: well, I can't answer the question because there's no question there. The fact that something <laughs> used to be illegal and it was wrong. Well, well, hold on. Let's follow your your point through to the logical conclusion. We had Jim Crow. Jim Crow was bad. Therefore, we shouldn't enforce any of our laws. I mean, yeah, the fact is that that you know, well, <laughs> it, it is. The point you're making goes to that conclusion. Mike,
3: <laughs> you are sitting here today telling us that because the rule of law, because you are strong respect the American tradition is the rule of law, we must enforce the laws that are on as well as they are today. That same.
2: Yeah, but I guess the problem is if you abandon that theory, then you don't have any argument for enforcing any laws. Mm-hmm. And and the fact is Jim Crow was wrong, but, but fine, what's your point? Slavery was wrong. Those are all things that because we have a country that is focused on the rule of law and holds certain fundamental liberties to be <laughs> sacrosanct via the Constitution, why those things disappeared, because there were many other countries with similar problems where they did not disappear. But... I'm not quite certain I understand the comparison between all of these other things which come from racism and immigration because the immigration laws apply to everyone. So, someone from Britain, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, it, it's the fact that you're not an American citizen which confers a distinct legal status on you.
1: But they apply differently to people from different countries. For instance, in the employment based green card system.
2: No, they don't. They don't apply. Seven percent. Only seven percent can
1: come from any one country in any one year. So the wait time if you're from India is like seventy years. The wait time if you're from uh, Iceland is
2: there is none. I mean that discriminates based on country of origin. Actually, it doesn't. It discriminates based on the fact that you're not American. It the discriminates fact, based the on the country of from, origin. The fact that people from Iceland don't want to come here to work, but people from India do, is not a form if of discrimination. No it, that
3: from that's.
2: You're not putting forth a rigorous, you're not putting forth a rigorous intellectual test. You're telling me that you don't like a particular provision of law, therefore you wish to analogize it to a provision of law that people didn't like, like Jim Crow. But the fact is, because we had Jim Crow, does that mean we should have abandoned the entire constitutional framework and the enforcement of all the laws? (laughs)
3: Culture thing. You point to France, France's culture, people speak French. Have you ever been to anywhere else in Europe people speak Italian? Have you been to Geneva, where many of these international laws are made? Yes. Speak a multiplicity of languages.
2: Once again, I'm not sure I understand your point. People all over the world speak different languages. I speak several different languages. And it, bringing international law into this just adds another layer of complexity because there's no sovereign that enforces international law. It's all based on agreements. So, my that,
3: so my last question is about um you know, I just wanted to say that we I can debate different levels of immigration, and then I think having gone to the extreme of open borders, which I didn't hear you saying that, you can said expanded immigration, and then you sort of, I don't know what you're saying, but that's my last question to you, but on American culture, do you please define American culture? I mean, to me, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Chile. I immigrated to Canada as a child. I came to America with my parents as a teenager. To me, what I love about this country, um, among many things, is that culture to me is a tapestry of the experiences of peoples from around the world over decades. And that's what makes life here you know, rich and interesting and valuable. And to you, sir, is the Delano Rink strike not part of American culture? Like, what is your definition of American culture?
2: I'm talking about cultural institutions. The fact is that institutions develop out of cultures. So the fact that we have an Anglo-American common law legal system versus a civil law system like is used in France is an element of culture. And the way we enact our laws and the way we enforce them and the way we treat people who are subject to them is an aspect of culture. We also, English is the lingua franca here, that's another aspect of the culture. This is a largely Christian country, whether anyone wants to admit it or not, that's another part of the culture. As a matter of fact, Christopher Dawson and Ada Bozeman both argued that religion is culture and is the most salient fact. But my point about culture is immigration works when people assimilate. If people come here and they become balkanized and they live in separate and distinct communities, what's the point? Why didn't they just stay home?
1: And the facts of assimilation are that it's going as well as it ever has based on all the academic research and the polling and everything like that. What we see in the past is people, people look at the past and they're like, oh man, the Italians and Irish a lot of problems. And they turn the page and they're like, oh, it's fine. It's like what they've missed is that 80 years passed in that time period. The rates of assimilation are just as well as they ever were. We're just in the middle of it so it looks ugly, doesn't look like it's working, you know. My my
2: last name is O'Brien. I actually come from an Irish enough family that I can still remember relatives when I was a little kid speaking with an accent. The Irish arrived here in huge numbers about the time of the Civil War. The ones living in New York promptly rioted and refused to serve in the Union Army during the war. So there was a little bit of a cultural disconnect there. And there's nothing like that today going on, nearly the same scale.
1: Huge riots caused by immigrants and by nativists in the 19th century. Some of the largest lynching in American history was in New Orleans in the 1890s of Italian immigrants. Uh, lots of counter-riots. Uh, Hughes, who was the uh, Catholic Archbishop of New York at the time period, looked at a lot of these riots going on and he said if, any fi- if a single Catholic church is touched in New York, then we're going to turn the city in a second Moscow, and reference Napoleon burning Moscow to the ground. There is nothing as crazy as that going on today. By comparison to America's past, which we all lionize in terms of the immigrant successes, it is vastly more successful and peaceful than it was in the past.
2: I think a bad interpretation of history leads to bad policy and the problem is that we have lionized it. We look at the myth instead of the reality and the fact is that if you start reading immigration history a a lot of it is very ugly and unpleasant both for the people who immigrated to the United States and for the Americans in the places where they settled. Now is it all bad? No, but the fact is that there are significant portions of it. That are are not what the myths portray. Now the Irish assimilated into American culture most effectively when the police went on strike in New York and Boston. They all became police officers. They were suddenly responsible for enforcing the law, and there was a remarkable period of assimilation after that. And then they wanted to hold on to the jobs, which is why in a lot of these places you still have, main, you know, in the main Irish police departments. <laughs> the fact is if people are not going to assimilate they stay separate and they don't fully participate in the culture you don't get the economic benefits that are claimed and you don't get any additional cultural benefits you get a group of people
1: I just wanna say he has provided zero evidence that assimilation is worse today than the past zero evidence you wanna talk about bad history, the idea that the Roman Empire fell because of open borders, when in fact there are barbarian invasions and Brian Ward Perkins, who is one of the most prominent historians on this fact, wrote about the settlement of barbarian tribes inside Rome and that took it down. That is a far, di- there was a difference between an immigrant coming here today to work in construction and an army of vandals coming in, conquering an area, settling down a portion of the Roman Empire and saying we're gonna run all of the laws in our own area and kick out all the Romans. Oh, I, I think that's a difference. I don't know about you. There's a gentleman
0: you. in the back that's been waiting forever. go ahead.
2: I think your question, to the extent that there is one, rests on a presumption that enforcing immigration laws is bad. And the fact is that the United States, pursuant to its legal immigration system, admits more people than any other country in the world. On top of that, there's 330 million visitors that come here annually. So this is one of the most open countries anywhere in the world. I'm not sure I understand your argument because there is not a human rights issue when we say to someone, I'm sorry, you're a citizen of another country, we're not letting you in here for whatever reason, whether it be a national security reason or an economic reason. It's an exercise of the law by the United States. As a percentage of the
1: population, immigration to the United States is lower than a lot of other countries in the world. Um, In terms of total numbers, he's right. But in terms of percentage of the population, lots uh, we're basically in the middle of the OECD stream as a percentage of our population and far below uh, the historical highs. Uh, if we had no immigration since 1800, there'd be 225 million, about fewer of us. How many of you have a relative who came since then, or an ancestor? Uh,
0: all right, we have used that most of our time. We have one question left, and then you can get that. After that, you guys can come forward and duke it out with these two people as you see fit. <laughs> I gotta gotta
2: go to class, (laughs) actually. Go ahead. Um, First of all, I totally agree with Mr. O'Brien.
3: This country has the right to defend its borders. It has the right to determine who it lets in, who it doesn't let in, what countries they're from, what countries they're not from. I am sick and tired of people on the liberal left side trying to call us names because we want to our it. And we have 50,000 homeless veterans. Let's take care of them first. Okay, that's the first point. Second of all, I don't know how you can say that the are good for this country. I'm differentiating- When did
1: I say that? Well, you when did I say that? You are you putting words in my mouth, ma'am? You were talking about all great economic From immigration. Talking, well, immigration. I want to make it legal. That's what the does. I'm not a member of the left either. I'm a libertarian. Zero facts so far. I keep going.
2: Zero?
3: Zero facts? Okay. Is one thing illegal immigration? I mean, then make it legal. No, once <laughs> you're illegal, you're always illegal. You need to that's
1: pay. not true. Congress can change the law anytime it wants. If Congress if congress has supremacy in this area and plenary power, it can change the law to be whatever it wants whenever so it happened
3: wants. Happened when Reagan gave you know, and <clears throat> three million, all it did, Ted, Ted Kennedy and his buddies came up and said, You grant amnesty, three million, we will secure the border, we will never have this issue of All they do is encourage
1: more. That's right, no, I agree. I don't
3: believe that there's 11 million, because that's the figure they've been thinking since the year
1: 2000. The figure is more like 30 million. I agree, no I agree. That need to leave. no, I agree. No, I agree, ma'am, about your, your analysis of the 1986 law. The problem was that it did not increase legal immigration. When laws run up against reality, reality always wins. And the notion that we can have a fortified border and stop all the people who want to come in here, when the median difference in income between our country and other developing countries is a fourfold increase, the Soviet Union couldn't go against economic reality for its 70 years, despite the fact that they were willing to kill tens of millions of people. this government is not going to be able to do it either. It's not going to be able to do it either. And by the way, yeah.
3: Responsibility. That is not it isn't state's responsibility, and we are It isn't. It isn't. And people coming into our borders and me thinking as if we have absolutely no right to violate our laws.
1: Then let's make and it legal. To violate our border and we need to get out. This is the root of the problem. Because you have poverty or crime is not a reason to prosecute. This is It's not a reason to put in this
3: country. And I I want how you do not address the facts. Like seventy-five percent of our
1: prison population is illegal. No, it's not. No, it's not, ma'am. I did address that fact with my citations. If you want, I would like to send you some facts. But that is, I think everyone knows this. This is
0: nonsense.
1: Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. It's cite your source. It's
0: five thirty. No, but
1: I want to say just one other fact that she was wrong about. She said governments have rights under our legal system and our Anglo-Saxon system. Governments don't have rights. Governments have powers. Individuals have rights. And your notion that the government should stop Americans from doing Americans from doing business with foreigners in the way they want, to invite them over here in the way they want, under their house
6: Will and their wait. circumstance, it's is actually the so right. anti-Russian perspective. On that harmonious <laughs> note,
0: we are going to stop. <laughs> and we can all argue after I know Matt has
3: some place lot, to go. A lot of fun. <laughs>